I wish all of you who are women happy Mother's Day, not just those of you who have children, but those of you who have a mother, uh, and so that includes everyone. It's always awkward to have Mother's and Father's Day when God has not seen fit to give some of us uh, wives or husbands, and some of us who are married, He has not seen fit to give us children. And... I want you all to know, regardless of your condition, that our hearts do go out to you, to you who are single mothers, to you who have not been given children, and to you who God has not yet made it clear who you are to marry or whether you're to marry. Um, This is not a church that looks down on those who have various challenges in their lives or griefs. We do love you and we will stand with you. I'd ask you to turn this morning to a good Mother's Day text, which is 1 Timothy chapter 2. Probably there are a few texts in Scripture that you've heard me apply more to your life as individuals and our life as a church in this text, but you'll be interested to know that I've never preached a sermon on the text. And so there's a first time for everything. If there is a text in Scripture which is hated, explicitly and directly hated, this is it. Um, I hope you have the honesty to admit that you're not happy I'm preaching on this text because you hate it. I hate it. We hate it. Um, But that is proof that it is the Word of God. Uh, You don't bother hating things that uh, don't have something to say to you. Um, And today is Mother's Day, and I believe that speaking in generalities rather than specifics. In other words, if we don't look at Mary, the Virgin Mary and her birth of Jesus, but we look generally at what Scripture says about motherhood, there probably is no text in Scripture that has uh, as much honoring of motherhood as this text, specifically the final verse of chapter 2, verse 15. Well, let's hear the Word of God, which is, Uh, True not just in the ancient world or the Middle Ages, but true today in 2006. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet, for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. So here's my question to you this morning. Who is against apple pie and motherhood? If you think about that expression, it's a truism in American culture. It gets at the very heart of who we are as a nation, right? Um, We like apple pie and we like motherhood. And so if somebody says to you, do you love your wife? You ask them, well... Am I against apple pie and motherhood? Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's such a stupid question. 
nobody's against apple pie. Now, I actually don't like apple pie. But your laughter indicates that I'm an idiot for not liking apple pie, because if you're American, you like apple pie. Well, there are some apple pies I like, so let me redeem myself, but I haven't found them yet, or not often. Um, And so let me ask you, do you love motherhood? And of course, everybody says yes, and all the stores put out uh, signs near the store that say, you know, this space reserved for mothers with toddlers. And so there we have it. We love motherhood, right? And it's, it's so nice and so simple. Um, but of course, the truth is we hate motherhood. And you say, oh, we don't hate motherhood. Look, you've got a carnation. And you honored Annie for giving birth this week. And you prayed for other women that are pregnant. Well, in point of fact, our culture does hate motherhood. And... Uh, I don't say that um, in every particular case we regret it when a woman gives birth, although quite often I've heard mothers of large families talk about how consistently people look at them and kind of go, when they get pregnant again, like, don't you know how that happens, you know? Don't you know how to keep that from happening? Um, Well, that may be not hatred, But you know what I think we do hate is I do think we hate what motherhood symbolizes. And what it symbolizes to us is what? It symbolizes to us weakness. If you have ever been one of those husbands that was forced to go through a birth with your wife, um, you know precisely what the nature of childbirth is. And there's a reason why men, some of us, would prefer not to be there, and that is uh, you don't really like seeing how life comes into this world. And if one of us has to be there, it kind of makes sense that the other one shouldn't have to be there. It's kind of like my reaction to Saving Private Ryan. You know, if if men have to fight war, why should women go and watch what happens? You know, you'd think that the whole point of having men do it is so women don't have to see it. Well, today we live in a day when men watch childbirth and women watch arms and legs and heads getting blown off. And uh, one is entertaining and the other is uh, the way that we show our loves to our wives. And I actually do believe in the man being there. I'm not trying to be against apple pie and motherhood. But if we think that because we have spaces in front of stores that say this space reserved for mothers with toddlers or little babies, and that that constitutes our loving motherhood, I say no. Um, So let me make my case. What is motherhood? Well, motherhood is a position of weakness that God has placed on women. It has an absolute stranglehood on a mother. The reason the Bible used is an illustration in the text that we read earlier. Can a woman forget the child that's at her breast? Is that in fact, it is possible. It is rarely done. But it is so statistically small as to be, again, one of those statements that everybody knows. No, women don't forget their children. Yes, some of them do. Yes, some of them are incapable of being mothers. But generally, a child has... a 
an absolute Loctite grip on his mother. She cannot forget him, certainly when he is in her womb. It's impossible. You know a woman is pregnant because of where she keeps her hands. A pregnant woman keeps her hands on her stomach. And it's because she's communicating to her child. She can't help it. Now, I'm not saying it isn't good. I'm just saying that it's the most natural thing in the world. And what about when the child is born? Well, she certainly can't forget the child soon after it's born because that child caused her the greatest pain most women will ever go through. And what about a day or two days afterwards? Well, she can't forget the child then because the child cries. Studies show that when a child cries, that generally the father is incapable of recognizing whose child it is. Mothers are always able to recognize the cry of their children. Why? Because God gave women breasts for the child to feed it. And so a mother can't let go of her child, and the child won't let go of her. And you get older and you see uh, women who are in the later years of their lives who have children who are not thriving, children who are on drugs, children who have had their wives walk out on them, children who have cancer, and you see that the Loctite grip that children have on their mother continues until their death. And so what I would say to you is that motherhood is weakness because mothers are tied to other human beings in a way that fathers aren't. Now, this text opens up what it is to be a woman. But it doesn't open it up strictly from the position of motherhood. It ends with with motherhood. But it starts out by talking about, first of all, men and second, women. And all of it is in the context of what in the book of 1 Timothy is called godliness. It's interesting that the word for God, translated godliness in the New Testament, is used over half the times in the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy has over half of the occurrences of this word. If we look at 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, it says godliness, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. In fact, we're, we're commanded to seek godliness in 1 Timothy 6.11. It says, but flee from these things, you man of God, Paul speaking to Timothy, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. This word that's translated godliness was first used by Homer about a thousand years before Christ. And it was a word that indicated in ancient Greece the, the external actions and conduct of people who were pious. Sometimes it referred to how you conducted yourself with other people, but most often it referred to the sacrifices you brought to your gods, the, 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 the external religious public actions that you would do. And uh, the two Greek roots of this word godliness are the word well and the word worship. So it's well worship. Now, I don't mean worshiping a place that gives us water. But it's the word well used in the, in the meaning good. So it would be good worship. Um, to worship properly, to pay reverence to God in a proper way. In a book on the lives of great Christians, speaking specifically about George Whitfield and John Wesley, J.C. Ryle says they taught constantly 
the inseparable connection between true faith and personal holiness. They never allowed for a moment that any church membership or religious profession was the proof of a man's being a true Christian if he lived an ungodly life. In other words, if he lacked godliness. A true Christian, they maintain, must always be known by his fruits. And those fruits must be plainly manifest and unmistakable in all relations of life. No fruits, no grace was the unvarying tenor of their preaching, speaking again of Whitfield and Wesley. Godliness, then, is never letting go and letting God. Okay? It's not quietism. It's not a personal sentiment and an emotion in your heart. Godliness is always action. As a matter of fact, godliness is blood, sweat, and tears. Now, every mother knows what I mean, right? Blood, sweat, and tears. That's godliness. Godliness requires hard work and discipline. Empowered by the Holy Spirit to do them. In 2 Peter 1, it says, Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence, in other words, we're being told to give ourselves diligently, in your faith supply moral excellence. Okay, faith and moral excellence. We're being told to give ourselves diligently to moral excellence. In your moral excellence, knowledge. We're being told to give ourselves diligently to knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. We're being told to give ourselves diligently to self-control. In our self-control, perseverance. We're being told to give ourselves diligently to perseverance. In your perseverance, godliness. We're being told to give ourselves diligently to godliness. And in your godliness, brother, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. We are to give ourselves diligently to brotherly kindness and love. And Paul warns Timothy that there is a false godliness, a false piety. He speaks of the false believers and false Christians and false shepherds and false confessors of Christ who hold in 2 Timothy 3.5 to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Avoid such men as these. So there are those who cop a posture of being godly, but aren't. There are those who talk about being godly, but their lives don't show godliness. There's no blood, sweat, and tears. There's no work of the Holy Spirit in them that causes them to do things contrary to their will. Now again, the theme, one of the main themes of the book of 1 Timothy is a command for Timothy to pursue and to himself lead the church toward godliness. Our text begins by listing certain traits that men will give themselves to if they are godly. In other words, how will a godly man live? Well, in verse 8 it says, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Holy hands, prayer, and then we're given a negative, without wrath or dissension. Now, why would men be told not to fight and to get angry with each other? I'm clueless. Well, the reason is that generally testosterone calls, causes us to fight and to get angry with each other. And the fact that it's caused by uh, a male hormone does not excuse sinful behavior, does it? In other words, we are men and we are to avoid anger, wrath, dissension. 
Now, I imagine that next week when David preaches on what godliness is for men, that one of the things he'll talk about is avoiding anger, wrath, and dissension. But this week is Mother's Day. And so this week we talk about what constitutes godliness for women. And sure enough, as soon as Paul separates out the men, he separates out the women. And he says this about the women, likewise. So in other words, that's for the men. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as is proper for women, making a claim to godliness. Now, even that little statement about making a claim to godliness is an indication, again, that there are lots of people who make a claim to godliness, but it's a false claim. And so what Paul's saying here is, you want to know how to test whether or not a woman is truly godly and not just talking about it. Look at these characteristics. Now, what are the characteristics? The characteristics are loosely able to be summed up the instructions of godliness by talking about modesty first of appearance and second of conduct. Will you buy that? Look at the text. Verse 9, adornment. Verse 10, good works. And then verse 11 and 12, what constitute good works on the part of godly women? Am I saying anything that's controversial? Hmm? Yeah? No. Is, is that controversial? So generally... Women who are godly are going to be showing in appearance modesty and acting modestly. Well, you say, well, no, not modestly. I say, okay, what word do you want to put in the place? Well, I guess I have to admit it's modestly when it comes to the dress because the word's actually there in verse 9. But I don't know that... I mean. It may not be that their actions are supposed to be modest. I say, okay, let's wait for the actions. Let's stick with the appearance because those are the first couple of verses. Modesty of appearance is commanded. She is to what? Proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. Okay, and then the negative, not braided hair, not gold, not pearls, not costly garments. All right. A woman who is godly will not dress and put on makeup and hang her jewelry in such a way, what? To call attention to herself. Right? I mean, again, am I handling the text properly? She will dress in modest as opposed to immodest clothes, with discreet as opposed to indiscreet clothes. Her hair and jewelry and clothing are not to be extravagant or communicate what? Seduction, right? Rather, they are to communicate modesty and good discretion. Her garments are not to be costly. Now, immediately we ask, no braided hair? How can that be wrong? And this is an indication that we need to know the meaning of costly, the meaning of modesty, the meaning of discretion, the meaning of braided. In other words, it, it's, it's not something to be taken uh, in the most direct and simple way possible. Um, in the ancient world, 
the sort of clothing and jewelry that are forbidden here were all ways of communicating seduction, status, and power. And so when you have a little girl who has, um, I don't know what they're called, but you know those little plates that little girls like to do to each other's hair. What are they called? Braids, braids, yeah. Or, um, are those little girls communicating seduction by that, and should we forbid little girls from braiding each other's hair? Put it in the context. There's absolutely no way that little girls braiding each other's hair are communicating seduction and power, right? They're playing with hair, right? So, we're not talking about... Uh, never putting two strands of hair and flipping them around each other. We're talking about the communication in the ancient world of specifically seduction. Really, braided hair was uh, one of the prime methods that women would indicate to men that they were available and that they wanted their uh, sexual attention. All right? And so, whatever the clothing, whatever the hairstyle, it is to communicate what? Modesty and good discretion. What does it mean to a godly woman today that she doesn't dress immodestly, but discreetly? Are there certain hairstyles that are seductive? Certain hairstyles that are flashy, that say, look at me. Now, listen, I would be an idiot to say much more about this. <laughs> you know, I mean, it is awfully um, embarrassing to address these matters in public. Uh, I'm sure that many women's Bible studies, this is the subject of the conversation. I, I'm joking. <laughs> In other words, um, never, never do we want to talk about this. Never. But certainly not if you're a man. This would be the one time we really ought to have a woman up here preaching, right? And the Apostle Paul was also an idiot. I mean, here is a man who at this time, did not have a wife, and he's talking about women. That is gauche. And not just women, but how they dress. And not just how they dress, but about modesty. Well, he must have a, a fixation. I mean, you know, he must have a problem keeping his mind clean to write about this kind of thing. You know? Right? Paul. Paul, you know, Paul. Oh. You know, you read the commentaries on this text, and oh, you should hear the commentators going, Paul, you know, that man, Paul. I remember one guy this week reading him saying that, uh, you know, the Apostle Paul, we can reject his, his reasoning knowing that it's wrong and yet still recognize that there is some truth to what he says. <laughs> you know, what truth? The truth your wife likes? What about clothing? Are there certain ways of dressing, certain materials and patterns, hem heights and neckline cuts that are intentionally chosen and worn to seduce the eyes of men? Are you ready for this? Or women. I mean, we're not just talking about modesty of women towards men, are we? 
We're also talking about modesty of women to other women. I mean, you look at the red carpet, you shouldn't. I don't. But you sh- if you look at the red carpet at the Oscars, it's not just seduction of men, although that's the principal thing. It's also a statement of power to other women and authority, strength. What is the meaning of the word dame? <laughs> and we all know what it means. The godly woman will not give herself to these things. What of women who by their dress seek to declare their power and authority over men and other women? Are there certain hairstyles and ways of dressing that communicate rejection of feminine modesty and deference? You know, both the embracing of femininity and the rejection of femininity is immodest in certain ways. If you embrace femininity in such a way as to seduce men, this is immodest. If you reject femininity in such a way as to intimidate men and other women, that is also immodest. I'll never forget being in a hospital up in, in Indianapolis to visit someone and meeting his daughter. A woman slightly under my age. And when I shook her hand, it was very clear to me that she was not a woman. Because she took her small hand, and I'm not saying it was small because I'm being... Uh, insulting to her, it was a woman's hand. I have a man's hand. You know, if you want to single out ten people from the congregation who are women and send them up, their hands will be inside mine. Because my hand's a man's hand. So she took her small female hand, she grabbed my hand, and she squeezed as hard as she could. Now, was she communicating something to me? And if so, was it modesty? Now, what if I had responded the way she initiated? And let me tell you, I fantasized about it for a bit. <laughs> I mean, I really did. The, 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 the obscenity of that woman's handshake has stuck with me to this day. It was so completely unfeminine. And it was making a point. Well... You know what would have happened if I had responded in kind? I may have trouble with some men in this church, but many of these of the men here, because of how God has made me, I could have them on their knees in a second. And it wouldn't have even taken a second for her to be on her knees. Is that the way we're supposed to relate to each other as men and women? She shows her strength and I show my superior strength. Because it's almost always superior... If it's brute force we want, you know what it is. Well, no, that's not how we're supposed to respond. And it's certainly not how women are to take the initiative, is it? Why? Because it's immodest. And so we see whether it is the use of femininity in an immodest way or the rejection of femininity in an immodest way, whether... We are demanding recognition sexually or demanding recognition politically. 
We are saying, look at me, I'm in charge, I am woman, hear me roar. And one roars through softness and seduction and the other through hardness and power. And it's roaring nevertheless. That's what it is. And I say, hey, here's an idea, all right? Let's have women be women. Well, you know what it takes. For women to be women, men have to be men. And one of the principal reasons women aren't women today is that men haven't been men. If you were married and then your husband decided he wanted another younger woman and he left you, what moral of the story would you get? Many of you would get the moral that it's not worthwhile cultivating deference and modesty and discretion because you can't trust a man to provide for you and to honor you and to be faithful to his vows. And so what we have is a culture where instead of the civil authority enforcing men to be men and women to be women, and you say, oh, no, we can't have that. And I say, why not? What do you think child support payments are? What do you think the government, sh- you know, going out and arresting deadbeat dads is? Is that not enforcing men to be men? But of course, today we have no-fault divorce And if a man and a woman divorce and there's a child, they both equally have to contribute to the child's support. And I say, what's happened? Men don't have to be men anymore? Well, guess what? Then women will be men. Because if the government is not going to protect women from that kind of abuse by their husbands, the fathers of their children, then women get the message they're on their own And they will cultivate all the masculine necessities that their children need. Because the one thing you can be sure of a woman is she will not abandon her children. And so if she learns that she can't depend upon men, then what? She won't get pregnant, people. Or if she gets pregnant and she's a woman and she doesn't want to depend upon men, she'll make sure that she has a butch lesbian partner who will not abandon her and who will go out and work so that she can stay with her child. In other words, she'll get a man. She'll either be that man herself or she'll find one. But she's not going to be vulnerable. She's not going to allow herself to get put in a position where a man can hurt her. And you see, this is where we are as a country. We have women who are not modest, women who do not defer to men, women who roar. I am woman, hear me roar, and numbers too large to ignore. And we have a bunch of men who are effeminate, who do not know what it means to work, and who think that they're God's gift to the world if they manage to do it for a day. We have men who don't know how to protect their nation and ask that their daughters and their mothers fight in Iraq. We have men who don't know how to make decisions, men who don't know how to say no. And we have women who do. And if you want proof for it, go into your homes. I know what your homes are like. Mary Lee and I have spent most of our lives trying to repent of that. You know, I'm as soft as any of you, and Mary Lee's as tough as any of you. We learned well. So is that what we want? Is that what we want for our children and our grandchildren? Is that what God wants? 
Remember what Chesterton says about Christianity? He says the problem with Christianity is not that it's been tried and found difficult, but it's that it's been found difficult and left untried. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. So we move from appearance to actions. And what are the actions to be characterized by? Well, look at verse 11 and 12. Verses 11 and 12. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. So I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. So generally, we can sum it up by speaking of quietness and submissiveness. Modesty and discretion in dress, quietness and submissiveness in action. <laughs> now, I ask you, uh, if the Apostle Paul could have seen us today, do you think he could have written something more hateful? Come on, be honest. What, what would you add? What did he leave out? You know, doesn't quietness and submissiveness kind of sum it all up? Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> now listen, people. Let me tell you something. I guarantee this is true. This is me speaking. There is nothing that will honor our mothers more than affirming quietness and submissiveness on the part of women. Do you understand that? If you turn your wife into a power broker, you have betrayed her motherhood. If you abandon her, you have betrayed her motherhood. If you refuse to let her give birth to your children, if you refuse to let her get pregnant, if you refuse to let her adopt a child, if you are opposed to weakness and submissiveness and quietness in women, you are opposed to your wife's femininity. You are opposed to motherhood. Because this image of a pregnant woman and the distended belly and the giving of birth is completely weak. It is weak. And if you will not as a husband take up the weakness that it requires of you, that you put your nose to the grindstone every single day so that woman never has to fear that her child will not be provided for, then you are betraying her motherhood. If you won't be weak and take on the defense of that home when an enemy attacks it and be willing to shed your blood for the protection of that woman and her children and your city and your state and your nation, then you are betraying motherhood. We're not honoring women when we require that they take up arms. We're showing our disdain for motherhood. 
We're not honoring them when we make them into men and have them able to squeeze men's hands in such a way as to intimidate the man. We're not honoring mothers when we turn our wives into seductive sirens. We're not honoring our wives when we make them go out and work. We're not honoring them when we hang them in a gaudy way and parade them up a red carpet into the Oscar ceremony. We're betraying them. We're refusing to be weak. Now, I'm using the word weak and strong in a number of different ways, but here's the truth. You know that weakness for a man is putting his nose to the grindstone and providing for his wife and children. Weakness for a man is saying no to pornography and no to the whore. Weakness for the man is submitting to his boss at work, even when his boss is a jerk. Weakness for the man is not having a day to call his own, coming home on Saturday and doing the honey to-do list. Weakness for a man is making sure that car that she drives is filled with gas and oil. My wife does this for me. Well, she doesn't do it for my car anymore. I don't know why you stopped. But she used to, <laughs> she used to actually keep not just her car filled with gas, but mine. I think it's because you don't ever drive my car anymore. Yeah, we used to trade cars a lot. Now, think through your life. point isn't about me, it's about you. How do you require your wife to be a man? Because you don't want to be weak. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. People, we have so many ways of avoiding this and so many ways of rebelling against it and so many ways of excusing ourselves for avoiding it and rebelling against it. I mean, I could spend the next five hours taking you through every single excuse that I've heard. And I've heard them, most of them, maybe all of them. All right. And there's some classics. What we see here in the text is that the godly woman's adornment is to be modest or quiet, that her public demeanor is to be modest and quiet, that actions and appearances are supposed to go with each other. This is godliness for a woman, but it's not always the case. I remember when I was in a debate over whether or not women should be pastors and elders in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, among the Mennonites. There were about 700 of them in this amphitheater or auditorium. And uh, I was debating a man named David Scholler, who's a professor at Fuller. He had been a former uh, professor at my seminary, although I'd never taken him because he didn't have a high view of Scripture and I didn't want to study under a man like that. So David Scholler got up and talked about how nice Jesus was to women and how important women were in his life and therefore women should be pastors and elders. I mean, that's his basic argument. And then I got up and said, you know, for Adam was created first and then Eve, and that was my basic argument. And... Uh, you know, they voted to credential women. That's what they call it. They voted to go ahead and have women take authority over men in the church. And you know what? In that large amphitheater, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Mennonite women who decided that day that, yes, they were going to credential women. Do you know what they all had on their heads? <laughs> it boggles my mind! They all had these little doilies. You know, they had head coverings on. What was the point of the head covering? The head covering was to show their submissiveness to men.
Godly women are to be quiet and submissive. When are they to be quiet and submissive? And here we go. Only at church, she said with great relief. He's only talking about what's to happen when Christians gather for worship. See, he talks about teaching. That happens at church. And so if the church is the context, does this mean that women are only to adorn themselves modestly when they're at church too? Church is the only place where modesty is the godly trait for women in appearance or action. Oh, well, not just at church, but when they're in public, like in the classroom there too. So just at church and in the classroom, but not at work. Well, yes, at work, that's public too. Well, what about at home? Step in the door and the godly woman takes off modesty and puts on brashness and mouthiness. How's that sound? Inside the walls, <laughs> inside the walls of her castle, her character changes and she can be as loud and out there as she wants. She can manipulate her children, gossip on the phone, argue with her husband, domineer in the home as long as she doesn't show it outside the home. Well, maybe not. And then another tack is taken. These instructions only apply to the home and the church, not to school or work or at the office or in the army. The only modesty being commanded is that of a wife to her husband, not of women in general, to men in general. After all, do you expect just any woman to have to submit to just any man walking down the street? Well, no. And yet, are you so sure that you can fence in the godly traits that are to characterize women? Are we sure they are for the church only, the church and the home only? Are we so sure women are to demonstrate feminine deference to their husbands only and not to other men? Well, I suppose they ought to defer to the church officers because they're men. (laughs) Now, listen, people. If we are biblical, godly Christians, we honor the Word of God. Okay, now what about other men in the church? May the godly woman seduce the other men of the church? Well, not seduce them. All right, may she command them and teach them. You see, you're on the horns of a dilemma. The minute you want to compartmentalize deference in actions, you have to compartmentalize Modesty in appearance. In other words, how come nobody's arguing that the only place women have to be modest is at home and at church? (laughs) Listen, here's the deal. It's just as plain as the nose on the end of your face. The reason given for these characteristics, the reason given is very direct and very clear. What is the reason? The reason is for what? Come on. For, come on, for what? For what? Come on. Adam was created what? First. And then Eve. Now, do any of you have a problem with the word first? If you're first in line, you have priority. And if you try to say, well, Galatians 3.28 erases that priority because it says in Christ there's neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female, I say, "Uh uh-uh, because the priority of creation came before the fall. And Galatians 3.28 is talking about God's value established and attached and given to women and to men. They don't have different value. They don't have different access to the blood of Jesus Christ. Men and women alike 
are saved by God. Men and women alike will stand in His presence. Men and women alike bear the image of God. We're not talking about the fact that women are intrinsically inferior. Ontologically, I'm sorry, but ontologically. We're talking about the fact, though, that God has placed in the order of creation, in the order of creation, a priority between men and women. And that is Paul's reason for saying women are dressed with discretion and modestly and that to live in such a way that they are quiet and submissive. And you can't compartmentalize this to the church and to the home because when you walk out of your door on Monday morning to work, you're still a woman. And when a man walks out, he's still a man. We're still sexual. And as long as we're sexual, we have the burdens of our sex that God has established in the order of creation. It's not a product of the fall. It's just not. That's why Paul says Adam created first and then Eve. And then, in case you didn't get it there, he points out the fact that it was the woman who was the one that was deceived. So prior to the fall and at the fall, we have reasons for women being quiet and submissive. So am I distorting the text? Now, there are many, many ways of escaping an instruction that you're given. You can talk about words. You can talk about authentic being actually domineering. It doesn't mean exercise authority. It means domineering. And so women are just to avoid domineering. Lots and lots of PhD Christians choose that option. And it's bunk. It's absolute bunk. And I'm not going to deal with all the devious ways that people try to escape these texts. It's beneath you as a congregation. I don't think you are devious. And so let's be honest with each other. What's our problem with this? Our problem with it is that everything around us screams no to this. Our husbands scream no because they don't want the burden of being an authority. Our mothers scream no because they've never demonstrated any deference or modesty in their behavior in their home. Our colleagues scream no because it's very helpful to men to prop women up and to have women exercise authority because... Few people are willing to play soccer with a woman the way they will with a man. Come on. I, you want to come to my son's soccer games and watch the boys play with the girls on the soccer team? Do you think those boys are doing slide tackles to the girls? They have to train you in the military to not any longer be committed to the masculine deference that is given to women because it will make you vulnerable on the battlefield. They have to desensitize you as a man. This is what they do in the military today. Because you can't have men going bonkers when a woman's getting raped. It removes the discipline and the structure of the military. And if you've got women out on the front lines, you can't be sensitive to those women. And so they desensitize you. Now, what about in our marriages and in our homes? It's very clear. Adam was created first and then Eve. And this is God's statement to us. He's the one that did that. And it's his statement to us that he is pleased by women who defer to men, not wives who defer to husbands. They could have said wives deferring to the husbands. It's a generic statement about the sexes. And then the Apostle Paul adds this final comment. And what is the final comment? The final comment is this. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Motherhood. 
the most positive statement made about motherhood. Now, again, we don't like this, and so we come up with lots of ways of explaining it away. We say women will be kept safe when they give birth. You know, in other words, God's going to be kind and women won't die. All women won't die in childbirth. But it doesn't say in childbirth, it says through. And it doesn't say saved in the sense of protecting your physical life. It's very clearly the Greek word that Paul uses over and over again for salvation. Women, what? What does it say? It says women will be preserved through the bearing of children. Not in the bearing of children, but through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. Now, is the Apostle Paul teaching salvation by works? What if I were to say to you that man will be saved through praying the sinner's prayer? Would you object to that? Eh, you might have some objections, but not nearly as many. Because that just doesn't feel that bad. I mean, after all, you do have to pray the sinner's prayer. You do have to repent and believe. You do have to confess with your mouth. What if I were to say that a man will be saved through work? Sweat, labor. Would you object to that? Well, not nearly as much. Why? Well, because every man works, but not every woman gives birth, right? In other words, we go through all these reasons why it can't mean what it actually says. Now, what is it actually saying? What it's saying is that God is pleased to use secondary means in our life to accomplish His salvation. We are saved through repentance. We are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. We are saved men through our labor. We are saved women through our childbirth. In other words, God has given certain duties to us. And those duties are the means of grace. And He is pleased to work in us through them. Now, does this mean that if a woman goes out and gets pregnant, doesn't matter if she has a husband, gets out and gets pregnant and gives herself to childbirth, she'll be saved? No. Because always the thing done has to be done in what? In faith. And this is why it ends by saying, if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. In other words, God wants us to be sexual. He created us sexual, and God expects the godly to live in the parameters of their sexuality. And as we live in the parameters of our sexuality, God will be pleased to have that be a means of grace. And let me tell you, any woman that has physically given birth can describe to you precisely how it is a means of grace. And any man who has worked an honest day's work in his life can tell you precisely how working is a means of grace. Any man who has carried the duty of a wife and children on his neck can tell you precisely how him observing the parameters that God has set up for men is a means of grace. As a matter of fact, I would say that the reason we don't have children is because we want to avoid the means of grace. Because why? Because we're completely self-centered. Because children are a cosmic bummer. And yet, if we give ourselves to having children, 
to motherhood, to childbirth, to bearing the duty of our children and our wives, how would you describe the blessings that come to you through them? Come on, tell me. Tell me. How? We've got ten years to listen to you. My father, as he was dying, he was well-known, famous, published, spoke all over the country and the world. Well, outside of the country, at least. You know, as he got to the time of his death, he said, the one thing in my life that I'm absolutely certain had value and gives me happiness today is my children. Why? Because we were good children? Mm-mm. Mm-mm, not this one. <laughs> By the end, it was sweet. So, I'm over time. And you know me, I could go for another five hours on this one. But I just am going to ask you, so, are you godly or are you not godly? That's it. Don't give me any explanation of why it doesn't mean what it says. Wayne Grudem was asked in a seminary class, what did Paul mean when he said Adam was created first and Eve? Wayne said, hey, you remember back there, right at the beginning of your spiritual life, you remember what you thought that text meant when you first read it. You remember that? And the seminary student said, yeah, yeah. Wayne said, well, that's what I still believe the text means. So, do you, do you, do you love God? Yes, I love God. Do you love His Word? Yes, I love His Word. Do you love this Word of God? No, I hate it. I hate it. Be honest. Come on. I hate it. All right, then. Repent. I'm trying to. Why should I be the only one that has to? Repent. Let God define your femininity, your masculinity. Let God honor in your womb and in your wife's womb childbearing and motherhood. Do it in faith, not because I tell you to, but because you love God. And you want your womb to be a vessel of Him. You want your wife's womb to be a vessel for Him. Let's pray. Father, we are weak. We are unbelieving. We are faithless. And yet, You have given us the gift